1: We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the
2: podcast. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network.
3: Welcome to Heritage Voices, episode 40. I'm Jessica Uquinto, and I'll be your host today. And today we are talking about indigenous land stewardship. Before we begin, I'd like to honor and acknowledge that the lands I'm recording on today are part of the Nuch, or Ute People's Treaty Lands, the Dineta and the Ancestral Puebloan Homeland. Today we have Natasha Myhall as our guest. Natasha, a citizen of the Sault Ste. Marie tribe of Chippewa Indians, is a PhD candidate in the Department of Ethnic Studies at CU Boulder with an area of focus in geography. Her dissertation research aims to understand how indigenous political, cultural, and environmental histories inform indigenous land stewardship efforts to protect the health of the community and indigenous knowledge. Her ongoing community-based research is concerned with the dynamics of tribal sovereignty, which focuses attention to the articulations of tribal natural resource management and how that relates to indigenous ways of knowing and being in the world. So welcome to the show, Natasha.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
3: Okay, so as I was just saying to you before we jumped on the show, I'm really excited to have you come on the show because I'm really excited to dive in, especially to natural resource management, because as I've talked about before on the show, natural resources are cultural resources and really, really dive into that whole side of things that I think gets forgotten a little bit. So I'm really excited to have this conversation with you here today. And to start us out, could you tell us about what got you interested in this type of work?
1: Yeah, definitely. So I feel like my interests within Indigenous land stewardship and broader Tribal Natural Resource Management efforts really started uh, when I was an undergrad. Just a little bit of background, I went to the University of Minnesota Morris. The university is on land that are traditionally for the Anishinaabe and Dakota Lakota peoples. The campus, before it became part of the University of Minnesota Morris and the University of Minnesota system, um, housed an American Indian boarding school. And this was um, mm. first administered by the Sisters of Mercy, and then later the US government. And so I share all of that background, because once the boarding school was transferred to the state, uh, they said that any Native student that would go there would go tuition free. So they have a tuition waiver. So I feel like a lot of Where I ended up today uh, first started by me attending the University of Minnesota, Morris. And while I was there, uh, I was originally a biology major, but then I took an American Indian Studies class and an intro to environmental problems and policy class, and I could see the connections between a lot of issues that are happening in Indian country in terms of the environment and natural resources. So I think taking both those classes at the same time was super helpful for me because I ended up majoring in both of those areas. Another important part of what led me to the work that I'm doing now was my participation in the American Indian Science and Engineering Society. And I was part of that as an organization as an undergraduate student. And I would attend their yearly conferences. And they have uh, one of the largest career fairs in Indian country. And it was like kind of first at these conferences that I learned about like summer research and was able to kind of do a variety of different research projects each summer through ACES, one of the projects that I really particularly enjoyed. And it was after that project that I was really like, wow, you know, I want to go to graduate school. I want to continue this sort of work was I worked with the Salish and Kootenai Tribal Nations in the Flathead Indian Reservation in Pablo, Montana. So I participated in what's called a research experience for undergraduates. Uh, It's an REU and I worked with the tribal college and the broader community for a summer to understand the ways in which potential areas within the reservation where they might be able to reintroduce blue camas, which is an important medicinal plant for the community. And so I was part of a larger research team that was primarily doing more of the natural science research but my focus was on interviewing community members and talking to them about where they used to gather blue camas and why this plant is so important. And uh, it's through that research experience that I really just was like, I love community-based research. I just learned so much from the community members that took their time to talk with me. And I felt like, you know community based research should be a part of every project all of that to say that's kind of what led me to where i'm at today is the research project while i was at salish kootenay college
3: we've talked about community based participatory research throughout this podcast in in various different episodes but could you for maybe people that are are just jumping in or aren't as familiar with it, could you talk about like what made that first project community-based and maybe like ways that you've incorporated that into projects since?
1: So in terms of the project with Salish Kootenai College, a lot of the work in terms of getting like community approval um, happened before I got there. So before I got there, the project PI had spoke to the cultural committees in the community. They had uh, two cultural committees and got approval from the committees to work on this project for the summer. So it was nice that Mm -hmm. that had already been done and that it was done in a way that was appropriate, that they received tribal approval before we sort of began our work in the summer. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of um, really interesting to kind of like learn and hear about once I got up there was that they were doing all of the right things in order to do the project in a good way. And then in terms of my own work, so I work with the Little River Band of Ottawa Indians, and I work with their tribal natural resource department. And some of the ways that I try to incorporate community-based participatory research, and I also think that sharing is a huge part of community-based research. So I, I always am sharing kind of what I'm learning and it really helps to kind of open up the conversation about like where I see some of my dissertation research going. And I think sometimes it's really great to just ask, like, am I headed in the right direction? Like, would you like to see something different? So that's something that I try to like really just keep in touch. And really just try to involve the department as much as I can. And something that I also find that's really important for community-based research. So I abide by my university IRB, but a lot of tribal communities have their own IRB review. And so that's something that I asked uh, before I even began working, um, if they had an IRB review process, and then I went through that. So that's something that I find um, is related.
3: To jump in for people that might not be familiar with what an IRB is, that's the Institutional Review Board. And it just makes sure that research with people is done ethically. So pretty um, important baseline
1: stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And then to give a little bit of background for tribal IRBs, there's a history of research research being done on indigenous communities instead of with indigenous communities. And particularly there have been research projects that, you know, used information in ways that tribes didn't want to be used. And so a lot of tribal communities have their own institutional review board process. So that way, you know, there's a clear understanding of the sort of research that's going to take place. And then also there's a responsibility uh, for the researcher to share the work and the data that they're doing with the community.
3: Yeah. when you were talking about community-based research and all this, I was nodding my head the whole time. <laughs> so, okay. To keep going with your story. So we talked about your experience at, at Salish Kootenai College and, and with the tribe. What, what happened from there?
1: So... I started my senior year at the University of Minnesota-Morris after that summer and went to an, an ACES conference. So I feel like a lot of kind of my journey is really uh, in part because of ACES. So that's kind of what happened after that summer. And then I ended up uh, visiting the University of Kansas, and I really liked the area. and decided to keep pursuing the sort of community-based ethnobotany work that I became really interested in.
3: So, okay. Personal curiosity. <laughs> so you're working with Dr. Kincher in, so you said in Southern Colorado and in your, your CV yeah. that I have, um, you mentioned Southwest of Alamosa and Northeast of Durango. So obviously Durango is only like 45 minutes an hour for me. So I'm, I'm curious where exactly you were working.
1: So I can give a little bit of background on the, the project that I joined, but we were primarily working in the Rio Grande and San Juan National Forests. Okay. So we, I can't remember the specific ridge we were on in Durango, but mm-hmm. um, those were the areas that we were in in Southwestern Colorado.
3: Mm-hmm. And how, like, why were I mean, and this might be a question for Dr. Kincher, <laughs> but like, why were those two areas the ones that were selected?
1: Oh, that's a good question. From what I can remember, there's a lot of harvestable osha or bear root that grows on national forest service lands, and I feel like those sites may have been chosen because those were sites like where we knew osha was already growing.
3: Mhm that would make sense yeah
1: so i think yeah and so i mean that's that's my guess trying to like remember a little bit about why those sites were chosen
3: so to to jump back to the the questions that are more relevant to everybody else instead of me just being curious <laughs> could could you tell us a little bit more about ocean and why it is so important
1: yeah definitely so OSHA or um, a lot of tribes refer to it as bear root. is a uh, medicinal and cultural plant. It's a high elevation plant, so it grows, you know, around anywhere from like eight thousand to ten thousand feet in elevation. And it's, it's widely used by a lot of tribes for colds, the flu, any sort of like gastrointestinal. And it's also used for like, like as a humidifier. So people will like almost like fill their homes with osha root, and it kind of like clears out your lungs and stuff. So I feel like it's a really widely used plant, and people particularly use the root. So you can kind of chew on the root. People will make tinctures like do teas and stuff. So, or like salves and stuff. So there's a, a wide range of use uh, with the, the root itself.
3: Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's definitely one of the plants that seems like is still in, in very heavy use today, or, or there's certainly a lot of interest in OSHA when it comes up in during our work and where it's available and all of those kinds of things. We are actually already at our first breakpoint, so why don't we... Take a minute here and then we will jump back in and and keep talking about Osha and, and the rest of, of your story here in a second.
2: Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high high quality audio with no stress on the guest just send them a link to click on and that's it Zencaster does the rest they even do automatic transcriptions check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months or go to zencastr.com com and use the code hevo h-e-v-o
0: swimsuit check sunscreen check phone charger check
3: So let's let's keep talking about this OSHA study, and what was the goal? What was the larger purpose behind the study?
1: Yeah, so in addition to bear root being widely used by a lot of native communities, it's also really um, popular within the herbal product industry. Huh. And so there was concern that bear root, might be in a possible decline due to unsustainable harvest practices so the project itself was really concerned with is there a sustainable rate of harvest for bear root and like how does bear root respond to different harvest pressures and so that was sort of the project that I joined and would harvest OSHA at different levels and just track um, sort of the regrowth of OSHA. So I joined um, and helped out with that work. But in terms of my own master's work at the University of Kansas, I was able to interview some native community members, herbal product industry owners, and the Forest Service managers that we worked with on the importance of bare root. So I was able to kind of continue some of that community-based work that I was doing. And then I also gathered and kind of wrote a literature review on all the existing uh, literature that's been published on bare root. And so that was sort of like my role in the project, uh, in addition to, uh, helping out with the field work.
3: So did you, in doing all those interviews with, you know, lots of different stakeholders, was there anything that was particularly interesting that you noticed between the different groups or um, just any particularly interesting findings?
1: Yeah. So I think something that was really interesting was I was able to interview and um, kind of talk extensively with a Diné elder. And then I also spoke with a Hispano woman who used bare root quite a bit. And something that I remember from my conversations, with the Hispano woman was that she had mentioned that all the knowledge that Hispano peoples know about plants, they learn from native peoples. Mm. So that was really something interesting that kind of like stuck with me But it's something I think about now in terms of like how do different ethnic groups kind of exchange knowledge about plants, um, but just the broader environment in general. So that was um, something that was really interesting. And then I also just generally learned a lot about the herbal product industry and a lot of the herbal product owners that we worked with are really interested in bare root being harvested in a um, sustainable way. So that was something mm-hmm. I just didn't really have much of a background or really knowledge about herbal products. And so it was just kind of interesting to learn about how, you know, they use bear root in some of their products. Like I remember one of the products that bear roots used in, it's called, um, singers saving grace and it's supposed to help with like sore throats. And so that's like something that like, I just learned a bunch, um, really about stuff I didn't didn't
3: know. Yeah. That's cool. Cause I feel like, I don't know. Okay. The herbal product industry, it seems like one of those industries that in some ways kind of like the environmental lobby <laughs> where in some yeah. ways they're the most in line with indigenous values and sustainability and things like that. But then in the other hand, they can be some of the worst with appropriation or uh, entitlement things like that. So that's, that's good to hear that it sounds like it was a, a really like positive interaction.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, I would say it was overall positive because everybody we worked with was really, I felt like, you know, their understanding and also they're like knowledgeable about not only just the overharvest on OSHA, but the importance a lot of native communities have um, in regards of bear root, I mean, I will say there are, you know, tensions within like general like medicinal plant management about plants being kind of sold for profit. And I think a lot of tribal communities harvest bear root in particular for personal and ceremonial use. And so I do think there's a general concern about just these sorts of plants being the, and the profit associated with them mm-hmm. um, for like the larger public. And so I feel yeah. like that is something that I, you know, that kind of sticks with me. And I feel like, you know, I still have conversations about Beirut and I I don't think that that sort of tension has really been addressed. Um, I think it takes a lot of relationship building between the forest service and the tribes they work with to kind of really understand where the native communities that harvest OSHA are coming from. Cause I remember one time one of the Forest Service Managers approached some of the tribes that harvest bear root and asked if they wanted to be paid for harvesting bear root. And they just were like, no, we don't want any sort of like monetary value for mm. this. Like we just, you know, harvest for right. our own use. And so that sort of like like it's just, you right. know, it's how are indigenous peoples using plants versus like the larger, like use of medicinal plants just by like the general public, I think is, is that's, it's pretty different.
3: Right. Right. Well, and that makes sense too, that, that land manager, that forest service person probably thought that that was the respectful thing because of the recognition of, of paying people for their expertise and, you know, tribes, tend to get underpaid as, as consultants and, and things like that. So they, there, they are probably thinking that they are being respectful without having the, the cultural context to, to understand. Yeah. That's really interesting, which, okay. Brings me to my next thought, which, you know, you've also worked on, a project related to the BLM and improving public policy and stuff like that. So I'm, I'm curious, you know, talking about the forest service and then the BLM and, and different land managers, um, Rocky mountain national park, which we haven't even gotten to yet from your perspective as somebody who, you know, both has an indigenous studies background and more of an environmental or an ecological ethnobotany type background. How do you think land managers like the BLM or the Forest Service, National Park Service, how do you think that they could better work on on some of these types of issues or or better partner with the tribes and other stakeholders too? <laughs> Sorry, that's a big question, I know.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean that's a really great question and you know, the first thing that kind of comes to my mind with you know, how do I think land managers could work better on Collaborating with tribes, I mean, working with tribes in general, I feel like, and this could already be something that's practiced, but I think, I feel like a lot of the land managers that I've met um, within, like, the Forest Service and Rocky Mountain National Park and the conference with the BLM, you know, these are like relationships that are built over time. And so I think knowing that any sort of relationship that you're building with a tribal nation um, is really going to take time. And I think it really comes down to like land managers need to listen to native communities. And I know there's already some of that happening with, um, you know, tribal consultations that happen on a yearly basis. That's kind of what comes to the the top of my head.
3: So, well, I guess I'll save this because we only have so much time and I want to make sure we we get to to everything. So I'm gonna come back to this one if it's if it's still there. But in the meantime, let's okay, so you've finished the OSHA study and then and then what?
1: Yeah, so I finished my work, bare root, and then I ended up at uh, the University of Colorado Boulder, and there, I'm in the ethnic studies department, sort of uh, from conversations with my advisor. I shared, you know, I'm really interested in tribal natural resource management. And that's really kind of how I started to kind of shift my focus a little bit to not just solely ethnobotany, but to also include broader tribal natural resource management strategies. And so I ended up Mm -hmm. spending some time with the Little River Band of Ottawa Indians. And I started working with uh, their tribal natural resource department in 2018. And so, broadly, my uh, work now, I'm trying to think about ways that community members are able to reconnect with their land through the natural resource department as a means to help tribal members kind of preserve their culture, identity, and history.
3: So, okay, I'm really curious. has there been any efforts to like work with the cultural resources department, or I'm not sure if they have like a tribal historic preservation office or something, because it just seems like this would be so fascinating to have, you know, natural resources and cultural resources really working together on something like that. Just, just curious.
1: Yeah, no. And I mean, so that's something I hope to kind of do as I continue doing my research. So I, um they do have a Cultural Resources Department, and I've been able to kind of um, talk with uh, their TIPO, Tribal Historic Preservation Officer, and because I, I do feel like, you know, kind of what you said at the beginning, natural resource management is cultural resource management. And so yeah. I'm trying to do a lot more sort of outreach to other departments because I do feel like tribal natural resource management is like central to Indigenous governance So, yeah, I kind of hope to kind of like broaden some of the work that I'm doing in an effort to kind of create connections uh, within the community. And then I just think that, you know, it could help with broader like outreach efforts um, that the natural resource department hopes to do.
3: So I guess, okay, going off of that and what you were saying about about your work. You know, your backgrounds are from two very different kinds of departments, basically, like like a American Indian, Native American, Indigenous Studies type department, Indigenous um, perspectives, anthropology perspectives, and then also, you know, more of a Western science, natural resources, ecology, environmental studies type background. So, first of all, how do you incorporate the two of them? Have you seen is that like conflict sometimes Um, or do they slide in together pretty nicely? And the same for like your work. I mean, so you're, first of all, your background in education for those types of things, but then also like you're talking about combining traditional worldviews and tribal natural resource management. So yeah, just curious about all of that.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's a really good question. I feel like sometimes... You know, Western natural resource management, uh, sort of ecology, are often um, at at a different like end or an opposite perspective than an indigenous uh, viewpoint. So sometimes I feel like they don't sort of fit well together. Ways in which that the sort of I think about this is through traditional ecological knowledge. I feel mm-hmm. like is a, a widely used term within Natural resource management, cultural natural resource management. And I really started to think about that term differently when I read an article by Paul Nadojdi called The Politics of T.E.K. And just broadly, it just talked about, you know, T.E.K., despite, you know, the intentions to value indigenous environmental knowledge, you know, this knowledge is placed within a Western framework. And, you know, that sometimes this sort of integration that happens does not really understand the sort of complexity of indigenous environmental issues. And so I think um, as someone who's within both of those areas, I think you have to be really careful with how you approach talking about it or even, even writing about it. Um, so that's something since reading that article and trying to think critically about how you know, indigenous knowledge is sometimes used as like a way for Western resource managers to say like, okay, like we incorporated indigenous knowledge, like that's it. And so some of the ways that I try to approach, you know, understanding indigenous environmental issues is through an emerging field, indigenous environmental studies. And so I try to, you know, center some of the work that I'm doing now from cultural stories specifically Anishinaabe stories that ground and inform native uh, traditions. And I feel like starting with stories and and then it kind of helps to really just broaden out the sort of binary between Western and uh, indigenous perspectives within resource management. I I think it broadens it out to really show that these are really complex environmental issues. So, yeah, that's kind of how I try to approach some of some of these ideas and um, just to really think critically about of all of that.
3: OK, so we are at our second break point. <laughs> it just flies by. So we're going to be back here in a moment.
0: Swimsuit. Check. Sunscreen. Check. Phone charger. Check.
3: in our final segment back from our break. And I want to, to finish out your story of your journey. Let's, let's talk about what some of your major highlights have been in your efforts through the years. So what are projects that you've been particularly proud of or, um, you know, creative or effective outcomes that you've seen more successful or just that have been interesting for you? What have been some some highlights for you?
1: I think in general something that I've really truly enjoyed throughout all of this is just how much I've learned uh, from the community members and elders that I've worked with. I'm really appreciative of all the knowledge and stories that have kind of been shared with me in all the projects that I've participated in around, you know, ethnobotany. I always feel like I learned so much from the community and I just sometimes I I feel like I learn so much from working with the communities than you know sometimes you know reading something in a book and so I feel like uh, I feel really fortunate to be working with uh, Little River and specifically learning about broader Ottawa tribal history um, within Michigan and I I feel like sort of the work that I'm trying to do, trying to bridge community members with their tribal natural resource department is really rewarding because I have gotten to know some of the community members and I'm just really grateful that, you know, that they're willing to kind of talk with me and just I'm able to learn sort of what they, you know, want to see from their tribal natural resource department, which I think is really interesting um, to try to bring the community perspective into their department a little bit more. And so that's been something I've really enjoyed as I kind of continue my dissertation work. And a segue to that, another project that I'm involved with at CU Boulder is uh, I work for the Center of the American West. And we work collaboratively with six uh, Ute, Cheyenne and Arapaho tribal nations. So we work with Tribal Nations, the Center for Native American and Indigenous Studies that's at CU Boulder and Rocky Mountain National Park. And we're currently working on developing what's called resource summary documents to really be more reflective of tribal history and contemporary connections to Rocky Mountain National Park. And something that I've really enjoyed um, within this project is I've learned so much about Cheyenne and Arapaho connections to um, what is now Colorado and the broader region around Colorado. So that's been something that's been really rewarding is just to learn about whose lands I'm on because my community is in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. I think it's really important for wherever you are just to to know like whose lands you're on. So I think some, that's been rewarding for me is to really learn more about that and the sort of within the project, we will go and visit uh, each of the tribal communi- communities that we work with. Um, I feel like that's really key in any sort of project is that you know tribes are so busy and they can't always travel, and so if there's an opportunity for you to go visit them, I think that really makes a difference, and so that's something that I've really enjoyed is being able to travel and and meet with the communities within their tribal nation.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I I'm really curious about this project. I'd love to hear more, but obviously last segment, not it not a ton of time. But I am curious, um, because you're talking about some different types of of, of projects here. And I, I'm just curious where where you want to go with all this. So like where do you see yourself in five or 10 years, if I'm going to give you an interview question? <laughs> but you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, do you want to be a professor maybe or work in, you know, CRM industry or for a tribe or like what what sounds interesting to you or just like a particular type of work? Where do you want to go?
1: I definitely want to continue working with indigenous communities in some capacity. For the foreseeable future, I feel like That's sort of what motivates me and just really inspires me as a person is just to be able to do the sort of community-based work uh, that I find so rewarding. So definitely continuing in that sort of sense. And then I got into graduate school and I was really interested in going to graduate school because I really like doing research. So definitely continuing the research component. But I also, um, because I went to a small Liberal arts college for my undergrad. I had really great teachers, and I was always really inspired. I'm as cheesy as it sounds, as a student, as a student in the classroom, and so I really want to continue uh, to teach in some capacity. Uh, hopefully, as a professor. So yeah, that's hopefully where I see myself in the next five to ten years.
3: Yeah. <laughs> okay, and so we talked about where you would like to go in the future. What about the field? So or the fields, I guess, since we've talked about lots of different fields today, how would you like to see them change? What would you like to see, you know, more of less of from the the various types of fields that you've you've worked in, in the future?
1: As the farther that I've gotten um, along in sort of graduate school, I've you know, taking the time to like really think about some of these fields that I was exposed to, like ethnobotany. So for that field, I feel like sometimes ethnobotany can offer up sort of a narrow view and it will just focus on just plant knowledge. Mm -hmm. And it really misses the importance of the general like lands and waters and knowledges that are associated with plants and other and really the non-human world and something that uh, I had to kind of collect a lot of literature that was written about Beirut when I was um, in my master's program and a lot of it the literature the ethnobotanical literature was really old from a western viewpoint and so I just don't find that that necessarily that sort of literature is, I don't want to say, useful. I don't find that that literature really captures the importance of plants for Indigenous communities. And so I'm hoping just for the field of ethnobotany is for it to kind of move away from this, this Western viewpoint and just really sort of read these sort of earlier texts and just know, um, kind of think about what was happening at the time uh, to Indigenous peoples, and that, you know, what you might read um, in an older text on indigenous sort of ethnobotany may not present the whole story. So that's specifically for ethnobotany. Sometimes I think the broader field of natural resource management can overlook native cultures and how native peoples often look at, you know, the environment or animals or plants as is sort of like a responsibility to care and respect for the environment. But I think, you know, natural resource management can often talks about like the language of controlling and harvesting and the sort of language around property rights. And that's not really reflective of how tribal nations view these sorts of, you know, plants and animals and stuff. So I think that sort of like term or this language of property shouldn't, you know, be used um, within native communities.
3: Okay, and I've, I'm I really like the way that you worded that about how languages within the discipline shape how how they do things. I guess <laughs> the best way of putting it, I, I think. That's something that you. It sounds like, um, from what we've talked about before, and you know, from your CV and different places, that that's something that's that's pretty interesting to you. And and then I would love to hear about more. Is this concept of language and how the way people talk about the natural world affects how they treat the natural natural world, and and you also have experience, you know, teaching language and some different things like that. So I'm, I'm just curious to hear your thoughts on on language and place and res- natural resources and teaching of language, all of that.
1: So I was really fortunate when I went to the University of Minnesota, Morris uh, to take Anishinaabe language classes. And our instructor is a first language speaker. And so for me, um, not really knowing a lot of Ojibwe I was really, I just learned so much and then was um, able to be a teaching assistant for Intro to Anishinaabe Mowen. And so that was kind of really fun for me, but it was also really nerve wracking because I'm not a fluent speaker. And so I felt like I was just sort of learning alongside the students in the class. And so I was able to kind of host weekly language, roundtables, and I try to, you know, coordinate and plan like interactive activities. So that's my early approach to like just learning about the Ojibwe language and really just just kind of knowing that I'll always be a lifelong learner of Ojibwe. And particularly now, I, I try to think of language, uh, specifically um, Ojibwe language, as something that informs tribal natural resource management. So one of the conversations I had with around Anishinaabe language was that, you know, I was talking about TEK and the tribal natural resource manager was like, well, you know, we don't really use TEK. We like to think about our knowledge. And he said, uh, which translate from Ojibwe, and and it means knowledge, you know, that there's specific knowledges that are within indigenous communities. And a lot of these knowledges are attached to language and teachings and stuff. So for me, as someone who's continuing to try to learn Ojibwe, I'm trying to make it a point to go to Ojibwe language classes. And within Little River, they host a summer language camp every summer. And I was able to go last summer and just kind of participate and go to some of the workshops they had around language revitalization. So I feel like language revitalization plays a critical role within just indigenous communities in general, but I also hope to incorporate it more into tribal natural resource management.
3: Okay. Well, there is lots more things that that I would love to ask you about, and I'm sure we could talk for much longer, but unfortunately... We are at our time. So, I guess, is there anything that you wanted to say to, to close all this out, or anything that you wanted to add where people can find you, maybe?
1: So, I can be reached at my email, which is natasha.myhall at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter, and my handle is natasha underscore quay, K W E. So, yeah, I mean, I really appreciate being asked to speak about some of my work and kind of what I've learned in general, I feel like I'm always learning new things. And yeah, that's if there's anything I could, you know, say to, you know, someone who's listening is just, you know, be open to learning and then also be open to unlearning what you already might know.
3: Yeah, very well put. Okay, well, thank you again so much for coming on. And I hope we get to chat more sometime.
1: Yeah, definitely. Thank you so much.
3: Thanks for listening to the Heritage Voices podcast. You can find show notes at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash heritage voices. Please subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or the Google Music Store. Also, if you like the show, please share with your friends or write us a review. If you have any questions, comments, or show suggestions, please reach out to me at jessica at livingheritageanthropology.org or you can find me on Facebook through Living Heritage Anthropology or on Twitter at Living Heritage A. As always, thank you to Lyle Blanqua and Jason Nez for their collaboration on our
2: incredible logo. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to com slash members for more info.